0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9 Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. In his latest book, Welcome to the Terror Dome, The Pain, Politics, and Promise of Sports, Our guest today, Dave Zirin, looks past the shiny surface of sports to what's really happening in the locker room, the boardroom, the arena, and the stands. Zirin is the author of the widely acclaimed book, What's My Name, Fool? Sports and Resistance in the United States, and the Muhammad Ali Handbook. He also writes the weekly column, Edge of Sports, and contributes regularly to The Nation and Slam magazine. Dave Zirin, welcome to Weekly Signals.
1: Hey, great
2: to be here. Thank you. Well, how are you doing today? Are you in New York, New York? I am in Washington, D.C. It is 198 degrees in the shade. <laughs> like, humidity hits you in the face like a ping-pong paddle uh, to the nose as soon as you walk out the door. Uh, Not exactly a day where I'm feeling great about sports.
0: So what's global warming going to do to the sports scene?
2: <laughs> hey, I, global warming? I mean, what global warming? I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds like that fuzzy science. That yeah, you know, that fuzzy yeah.
3: science.
2: Those so, wacky liberals. Are saying. <laughs> uh-oh. Yeah, that's that's us out in Orange County, the wacky liberals. Wacky liberals, yeah. Right? yeah I'm with, I'm with the uh, the John Birch listeners out there. <laughs> These people trying to put fluoride in the water—that's the real problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You identify
0: well, it. well, I apparently had too much of that. I think I I but, know you must have been asked this one a million times, uh, and and you know what's coming—it's it's Barry Bonds. But how do you think baseball handled his uh, career? record-breaking home run, and Bud Selig
1: especially.
2: Well, it's interesting. There's the baseball question, and then there's the Bud Selig question. Like, frankly, I think now that it's all said and done, I think Henry Aaron proved himself to be an amazing class act. Um, I think the fans, you know, doing the, the message on the jumbotron and really proving to everybody that, like, look, it's not a case of that he was against Barry Bonds, which is what a lot of people were thinking, but it's much more that he just didn't want to be in the spotlight, and he just wanted to take a step back and let – the, the circus proceed on its own accord, um, I think that the fans of San Francisco deserve a ton of credit I mean for giving I mean frankly it's, it's a giving us this incredibly magical moment. I think that was fantastic. The reception he got I spent some time in San Francisco uh, during the all star break and just I mean like being in an alternate universe uh, in terms of how they think about Barry Bonds out there, much more of a protective uh, enclosure, if you will, a walled city of support for the man. I think Bud Selig could not have handled it worse. And let me just say, first of all, that when it comes to Bud Selig, I'll just put my cards on the table. I think he's like King Midas in reverse. Everything he touches turns to poo. (laughs) And I honestly, like, Bud Selig came to my house right now and said, good morning, I would be like, no, it's not. (laughs) I mean, everything. I just think you get everything wrong. And I think this is another example of that. Like, let me tell you, like, if Bud Selig had gone up to a microphone a couple months ago and said, look, Barry Bonds is probably going to break this record at some point, but I don't think he deserves it because of the Balco testimony that's leaked, uh, because of the bizarre growth in his power numbers in his late 30s, and therefore... I don't care how this looks, I don't care how I'm criticized, I'm not going to honor this record. If he'd said that, I would have disagreed with it, but I would have been like, you know what, I respect him for standing up and having an opinion, even though I think it's absolute BS. I will respect him for at least being clear about where he stands. If he had stood up and said, you know what, every era in Major League Baseball's history is tainted. Every era is problematic. There's no such thing as purity in this game, and therefore, the numbers are the numbers, And he's the one who's going to break it, and I'm going to be there to honor him. I would have been like, right on, Selig, because, frankly, that's my opinion as well. Now, what he did instead was the most bizarre, uncomfortable kabuki dance. The most uncomfortable I've seen a public figure since uh, Hillary Clinton was trying to hold Bill's hand after all the Monica Lewinsky stuff. You know, like there's this bizarre kabuki theater where it's like he shows up, he stands up when Bonds hits the homer. He doesn't clap. He looks about as comfortable as if he's got, you know, colitis or hemorrhoids or something. (laughs) Then he doesn't show up when he does break the record, because I believe they were saying he's meeting with Senator George Mitchell to talk about the ongoing steroid probe in the game. I mean, it was so transparent that... I just thought it was was gutless and it was weak. And it was very typical of leadership under Bud Selig in Major League Baseball, which is frankly no kind of leadership at all. He could have taken this moment and laid out a path for how fans should understand the anabolic era of the 1990s. Is the path going to be we condemn it as an era of evil, or is the path going to be you-know-what – Everything is tainted, we just have to move on now with stricter punishment and stricter testing. But he chose neither. And that to me is contemptible.
3: I, I having seen that video of him uh, when when Bonds hit the the tying home run is right. very it was very telling as just as you're describing it, it was this very uncomfortable moment. And I think the thing that's for me sums up Bud Selig and his his reign as the commissioner was the all-Star Game tie. I think mm-hmm. that summarizes his management style in a way that you really couldn't have written it up any better. He he calls the, the All-Star Game off in a, as a tie when, I, was it at that time they were still determining who would have home field advantage for the World Series? No, that
2: was the next year. It was the next year, okay. And right. that was partly, and that's another typical feeling yeah. thing. That yeah. was an overcorrection. right. So what, Hank Blaylock of the last place Rangers hits a home run, and therefore the American League gets home field advantage in the World Series? Right, right. What kind of BS is that?
3: It's making a bad decision worse. Right, it's an
2: overcorrection. It's the same way of being like, steroids? What's a steroid? Like, going from that to saying, like, you know what? You're caught once, 50 games. Caught twice, whole season. Caught three times, banned for life. And it's just like, wait a minute. None of this deals with the root issues about why players take steroids about how they get in the locker room, and about who knows what, when, where, and when.
3: I'm going to remind our listeners we're speaking with Dave Zirin, and the book is Welcome to the Terror Dome, The Pain, Politics, and Promise of Sports.
0: Do you think uh, steroid is the worst uh, problem in baseball right now? If they dealt with that, things would be peachy, or is there something else on your mind?
2: Oh, no, I don't think steroids are the worst problem in baseball at all. I I didn't think, think so. No, I mean, frankly... And we could even talk about, like, if people are that worried about the record books in baseball, then maybe they should be worried about these 19 new stadiums that have been built since 1989, which are about the size of a Hugh Hefner's hot tub. (laughs) Or they should be worried about the fact that... You know, that the stri- they've eliminated the high strike. That's something Jim Palmer, the Hall of Fame pitcher, said, that the loss of the high strike has caused more of a power surge than any pill or any cream or any clear. Yeah. You basically have to throw a sunflower seed through the eye of a needle to get a called strike anymore. Yeah. So yeah. these are things that I think are more worrisome if we're actually worried about the record books. But when we're talking about what's the problem in baseball as a whole, I mean, look at the way the Yankees are making this slow climb back to contention over the course of this season. And it's because they're able to buy their way to do that. The problem in baseball is still that you've got several teams that year in, year out are just not going to compete. And it seems that the luxury tax, this very weak effort at revenue sharing, is actually creating greater incentives for them not to compete. Because it's allowing them to get money, and there's nothing that in any way allows them to be accountable for that money that they're getting. So I think one of the things, the bigger problem in Major League Baseball, is I think every team should have not a salary cap, but a salary floor where every team is actually obligated to spend, say, $50 million on their roster. Mm-hmm. To make sure that if I'm a fan in Kansas City or if I'm a fan in Pittsburgh or if I'm a fan in Tampa Bay, it's not a joke. It's not glorified triple i I'm not just a squad that's developing decent talent that can then sign big, bigger contracts elsewhere.
0: Now, you, you talked about the stadiums, and uh, you grew up, in, not grew up, but you went to college in Minnesota?
2: Yep, grew up in New York City, went to college in Minnesota.
0: Uh, give us a, a little take on, uh, is it uh, Mayor Polad there? Or oh, not Mayor,
2: that's Owner Polad. Owner Polad, that's right, yeah. Oh, Polad, he's the owner of the Minnesota Twins. He's 92 years old. He makes Montgomery Burns look like Chris Kringle. <laughs> yeah. And he's the richest owner in Major League Baseball. He's wow. worth upwards of about $3 billion. Mm. And he has chosen to spend the last 20 years of his life. And I want people to think about this, too. You're a billionaire. You're 72 years old. You've got two more decades, basically, of being compass mentis and being a contributor to society. How do you spend those two decades? You figure out a way to take $500 million out of the pockets of poor people in Minneapolis, St. Paul, to build you a stadium? I mean, that's so obscene, it almost boggles the mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not a big fan of owners, but I'll give credit where it's due to a local guy here, Washington Redskins owner, the late Jack Kent Cook. Uh, yeah. He spent the last years of his life taking his money and building a stadium on his own dime yeah. that they that they called Jack Kent Cook Stadium. Then Daniel Snyder bought it and changed the name to FedEx Field, but let's not go there. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, the I, honoring I, of I, the late Jack Kent Cook, FedEx yes. Field. Um <laughs> So disgusting. But yeah. Well, I, and,
3: and uh, is is uh, Jack Ken cooks the uh, the the guy that uh, went swimming with his with his girlfriend, right? And didn't come back. Was it Jack Ken Cook?
2: What are you talking about? The drown. The
3: drown. The ram owner.
2: No, no, no. That's uh, Frontier. Oh, that's right. Yeah.
3: I'm sorry. My goodness. Man. Oh, I'm sorry. That was a big <laughs> gaffe. There. I, no. Okay.
2: No, that's okay. And then Georgia Frontier became the owner of yeah. the Rams, and yeah, well and that's still another. Is. And
0: she doesn't like it that, anymore. That's yeah. that's. Another. I
2: believe uh, his, his full name was uh, Carol Dawson. Was the owner of the Rams Georgia Frontiers? Yeah, yeah, uh, uh-huh.
3: yeah, that's right.
2: Is it one of those male Carol names like Carol O'Connor? <laughs> yeah, it was
3: Carol. And yeah, and yeah, the, the suspicion still persists on that one. back, it, back it. to Poland. Yeah. he's he's the owner there
2: in well, Minnesota. Here's the thing. I mean, everybody knows that the bridge fell. Yeah, and uh, the, you know, hey, who needs bridges uh, yeah. when we can have publicly funded stadiums? The next night after the bridge fell was supposed to be uh, the groundbreaking for the five hundred million dollar. New publicly-funded stadium for the Twins. Now, this is repellent for about 96 r- different reasons, but let's just go for a couple here. One, it's completely repellent, obviously, because the city and the state now look like, hey, we had priorities to pay for the stadium and no money whatsoever uh, to make sure that our bridges would remain upright. I mean, it's just so disgusting. It's the chickens coming home to roost yeah. on priorities in our country and when it time- comes to urban policy and stadiums. Yeah. That's one thing. But the second thing that's even worse is that it's not even like the people of Minnesota or the people of the Twin Cities, to be more exact. They never passed a referendum approving this. They actually turned down Mr. Polrad time and again when he wanted public funds to stadiums. So what he did was he took a step back and he started funneling hundreds of thousands of dollars into the two political parties and got it that way. So it's just not only is it an utter breach of democracy, because you're effectively raising people's taxes without their consent, taxation without representation, but what you're also doing is you're putting people's lives at risk because you're creating a whole set of priorities that benefit a small minority, a.k.a. the Polad family and the political elite, and not benefiting people who actually have to go across those bridges in the Twin Cities every day.
3: And and, and, and what's the reaction? Is is this reality dawning on people in in minneapolis st paul
2: well certainly the people i talk to it is i mean because when it started as you could probably imagine i mean people were engulfed much more with a sense of fear yeah i mean i i couldn't believe one of the statements by, by michael chertoff the head of homeland security puts out this statement that's like don't worry it wasn't terrorists yeah it's like that's supposed to make us feel better yeah yeah. Well, shit. At least if it's excuse my language, I'm sorry. If shoot, if at least it's yeah, uh, that was fleeting. I think. Shipwrecking <laughs> our priorities on. I'm sorry. Look, the, the, what I'm trying to make the point here is that like when we hear about terrorist attacks, at least there's a reason attached to it. In some ways, this is even more upsetting.
1: Because
2: yeah. it's like, wow, it's not even about somebody doing something. It's just about the infrastructure is so decayed that this occurs. Yeah. Like the levees breaking in New Orleans. And so the people I talk to, on just an uh, just an insane ratio, like a very fast ratio, are moving from being just fearful to being enraged.
3: Well, as they should be. And this isn't an isolated incident. This particular this episode in Minneapolis, as far as public financing of stadiums, it's happening all over the country. And how often do you see ownership threatening to leave cities if if the municipalities don't? Don't well, build a new stadium.
2: It's happening right now in Seattle. I mean, yeah. they're moving the Seattle Supersonics, the new owners, to Oklahoma City, and the news. Then they're from Oklahoma City, and they just bought the team from Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks. Yeah. And uh, Howard Schultz sold the team because they wouldn't give him a publicly-funded stadium, which is disgusting even of itself because the dude is the founder of Starbucks. I mean, what my family has spent on lattes alone would at least pay for the (laughs) upper concourse. (laughs) We have to buy a stadium for this man. So instead, he dumps the stadium out on Clay Bennett and his partners. Clay Bennett owns a a string of, like, used car uh, consortiums out in Oklahoma City. And recently, you know, his people have made statements. They haven't gotten the stadium either that have said, look, we we knew we weren't going to get the stadium. This has all been an orchestrated plan to move the team to Oklahoma City. That's repellent to me because, you know, people know anything about Seattle. This is an awesome basketball town. I mean, it's just terrific. Oh, I know. I believe that um, the city of Seattle should um, municipalize the team. I mean, that's frankly what I think. I mean, that's the, the a, phrase, the proper word in question is municipalized. The less kind way to put it is expropriation. Yeah.
3: Well, it, that, that's the Green Bay Packers.
2: That's the Green Bay Packers, exactly. Yeah. Now, the Packers come out of a very specific moment in history where it was realized, like, wow, we can't really support a team in Green Bay unless we do this. hmm Um, which is quite understandable given that it's Green Bay and you're competing with teams in New York and San Francisco and, you know, big Texas and whatnot. But this is, you know, this is a bit of a different case. I think this is a case where the people of Seattle can say, we have a bigger claim on this team than Clay Bennett does, who's only been here several months.
3: I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Dave Zirin. The book is Welcome to the Terror Dome. Just real quick on that point. And that is, is there, a, there is a, a legal way for them to essentially just, you know, nationalize, nationalize the uh, Seattle supersonics?
2: Yeah, there, there is a legal way to do it. There, there are legal means to do it. What okay. they would need to do is, and I was at just in Seattle doing a book talk, one of about 60 people, and it actually turned into an impromptu organizing meeting to talk about how to do this. I mean, the first thing they would have to do is go to the city council and get the support of the city council and the mayor behind it. Then they would need to pass a referendum that would say, hey, do you remember those hundreds of millions of dollars that we were asked to spend on a stadium where we would get no revenue back? Let's use that money instead to get, take the supersonics, and then the revenue from the supersonics would actually be fed back into schools and hospitals in the city of Seattle. Yeah. We would actually see the proceeds. It would be an investment in this team not throwing money down a hole where all the money the public money magically as if through some wild harry potter wave of the wand goes from being public money to private money in the pockets of the owners but instead it gets funneled back into infrastructure of the city and then they would have to approach the nba and turn this into a public campaign and the ideal, ideally clay bennett and company would bow out uh, gracefully uh, due to the um, and they would get paid back from their initial investment and the team would stay in Seattle
3: now has Oklahoma promised them a stadium
2: oh god Oklahoma has promised them um, the state everything. of <laughs> but the moon I yeah. mean I mean they've promised him like uh, uh everything Bob okay. Stoops is home I mean I'm trying to think of stuff that's yeah. in Oklahoma yeah. that they could give them but yeah, yeah. everything yeah. Oklahoma no. has promised
0: them okay so what about the NBA dress code What's that about? Do you, th- do you think that's a, that's a smart move on David Stern's part?
2: No, I think David Stern treats uh, hip-hop the way Tony Montana treated cocaine. You know, he can't get enough of it, sticks his nose in it, and then when it's all said and done, he's paranoid like Sigmund Freud. That's David Stern. Throughout yeah. the 1980s, they marketed hip-hop and hip-hop culture to the hilt. Yeah. It allowed the league to be this funky, fresh amalgam of street and and, and, and big city flash, and then when it moved into the 1990s and in the two aughts, now all of a sudden he wants to change the rules on people, and he's very scared about alienating, uh, as he put it, our ticket-buying fans. Now, the thing that he doesn't talk about is that the, ticket, the, 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 the demographic of the ticket-buying fan has changed a great deal in the last 20 years. Like, the NBA used to be something that middle-class and working-class families, multi-racial in character, could go to the games. Twenty years later, that's not the case. I challenge people. Watch some of these games on NBA Classic. I mean, it's, it's shocking how integrated the stadium is,, yeah. compared to today. Yeah. And that's because people have been priced out.
1: Yeah.
2: And it's executive seating now, and yeah. people sit in their friggin chairs. And demand tofu and Manhattan's and
3: well, and and also it's a lot of uh, companies. They buy blocks of tickets. Sure, most of the in, in, I know in Los Angeles, you go to the Staples Center, and I'm sure the the lower tiers, all anything near the floor is is uh, is owned by law firms and insurance companies and all the rest of it, and and uh, and that's it. It keeps you out. It, it keeps me out unless I hang out with an attorney or something. But uh, um, is is uh we sort of see.
2: I Let don't want to Let me tell you wanna... something though, That's crazy I, when I, was, I was thinking about this When I was growing up Yeah The lower bowl Was packed to the gills And it was the upper deck That was empty Yeah Now I go to games The upper deck's filled And the lower bowl is empty Yeah, yeah. And then they announce The sellout, out And I just want to scream Lies 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 mm, Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, We're speaking With Dave Zirin, the book is "Welcome to the Terror Dome. You had a question, Mike?
3: No, it's just uh, it, well, it's sort of this uh, tabloid moment in sports right now. With the in, in the NFL, we have Michael Vick, and the NBA, we have the uh, this situation with the uh, referee, and uh, of course, well, we that, can go that to, was a couple weeks ago. I know it was a couple yeah. of weeks ago. But what, what I'm curious about right now, and and, and want to get Dave's
0: take on, it, is what's going on with Pat Tillman? Do, do you oh, think yeah. he was murdered, and and how does this whole thing uh, play out with? Uh, with the Bush administration,
2: well, I mean, the evidence is staggering i yeah. I'm going to assume you saw the recent testimonies uh, that took place on capitol Hill
1: uh-huh. yeah. and
2: though that's the, the i mean it's just it's a staggering case against the thought that this happened the way they've been describing it. I mean, first of all, the Bush administration, the Pentagon, they have no credibility on this no because first it was a case of he died storming the hills of torah Torah going after bin Laden then it became oh, it was a case of friendly fire and he choked out his last words. This kid be happening to me. My name is Pat Tillman. As he slowly died, as people tried to revive him. Now it's the case of, like, wow, he actually was shot in the forehead three times, each bullet an inch apart, probably from no closer than 15 feet away. And as his family has informed us, his journal was immediately burned, his clothes were burned, his personal effects were burned, all within minutes of him being shot and killed. So this does not speak well for any kind of... Uh, for this looking like something as innocence, and put that in huge quotes yeah. as friendly fire,
3: and 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 also uh, as Donald Rumsfeld said, he had no idea what was going on, and we and we know we can believe Donald Rumsfeld on these things, and also uh, the president has invoked uh, invoked uh, executive privilege. Why right. in the hell? Why in the hell is the president of the United States invoking executive privilege on the death of an infantryman in in Afghanistan? Well,
2: Who's... because Pat Tillman died for PR, and there's. Yeah. No doubt in my mind that, um, that that PR was a conscious result. There's no doubt in my mind of this, that it was a conscious result of uh, the fact that the same week he died was the same week that the Abu Ghraib photos broke. Yeah, And that yeah. it became, I mean, this administration has shown that they're all about the headlines. Yeah. And they're all about crowding out one piece of information with another. There's a scandal, this, that, or other. The terror rating goes up. All right. You know, Michael
3: this, Chertoff gets a gut feeling.
2: He gets a gut feeling. You know, this summer there will be an attack. I feel it. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, it, it, I mean, the, 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 obviously the great tragedy of this is that if there was something credible, they have no credibility mm. to actually warn people in any serious way because I think people are so cynical about this right now. But the, the other thing about it is um, on the Tillman case, I mean, they ruthlessly exploited his death.
1: Yeah.
2: I and mean, he... for PR. And his family, is if it wasn't for his family, this would be nothing that we're we would be aware of.
3: Well, yeah, and exactly. And the, the people forget, I mean, as you brought up, rightfully, that uh, Tillman dies, uh, and then, I mean, the, the photos at Abu Ghraib, and uh, and Tillman dies, and then we've got uh, Jessica Lynch. There's a whole history of, of this administration sure. manipulating these people. Just,
0: just one more question before we get going here. Does this speak to a wider issue of sports manipulating the public. Do you think that, Absolutely. You think that there's, well, the, the military ties in, the San Diego Padres wearing uh, camouflage uniforms. Is, is this something that's uh, orchestrated more than we know, or you just think it's part of the...
2: Well, it, there's nothing conspiratorial about no. it. I mean, there's a conscious relationship between the Pentagon and Major League Baseball, and they do these things called military appreciation nights, and they're meant to goose up military recruitment. and it, it's, it's a commercial partnership. Yeah that Major League Baseball likes because it makes them look patriotic, and the Pentagon likes because their recruitment numbers are falling through the floor mm-hmm. since the Iraq war started. And they, you know, so it's, it's, but to someone like me who loves sports but hates war, yeah. <laughs> I find it to be horribly insidious yeah. because I want my sports to be a la carte. I want my sports to be sports. Yeah. And sometimes it boggles my mind when people say to me sometimes, hey, you're trying to make sports political. And it's like, man, I'm not trying to make sports political anymore than I'm trying to create gravity if I fall out of a building. (laughs) I mean, they are political. And if we're going to fight and take sports back, it's going to require us understanding exactly how they're political and about the messages that are pumped through our play.
3: Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Dave Zirin, for coming here and speaking to us on Weekly Signals. The book is Welcome to the Terror Dome. Thank you, Dave Zirin.
2: Oh, my privilege. Thanks, guys.
3: To learn more about
0: Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until
3: next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar, and
1: this is Weekly Signals.